welcome to Contracast. My name is Kat Boyd. I'm joined with my co-host, David Jameson. My sick co-host, should I say. Um, yeah, I've got the COVID, finally. Finally. <laughs> After years. Uh, I do feel a bit unfashionable, though. I should be coming, I should be coming to you as monkeypox. That's the big one now. I'm like one of those kids who's still playing with pogs when everyone had moved on to yo-yos or fucking football stickers or whatever it was. From that tragic kid in class, it was still, it was always kind of like one, one fad behind. Oh, I've still managed to avoid the COVID. No monkeypox either? No monkeypox, no COVID, plenty of other medical conditions. <laughs> but none, none of the most fashionable ones. Um, what are your symptoms? Are you are you brain dead? Why? I think that's the biggest one. I've got a cough. It's much like a cold, but if there's a difference, it's like the brain fog for me anyway is yeah. quite intense. I'm some pretty surreal dreams, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. Slight temperature. I love a fever dream. Mm. I get a real thrill out of it. Like even when you wake up and it's been a really dark one, zombie apocalypse, nuclear holocaust, you know, the vibe. Um, I don't know. It just feels, it feels like free cinema. Yeah, you know, it is a bit Twin Peaks, a fever <laughs> dream. So people walking backwards and so on. And speaking of free cinema, I went to see the Elvis film. Right. So tell me about this because I have to say, I've been to the cinema couple of times in the last few weeks and I've seen the ad yeah. and I've been kind of unconvinced by it I've been looking at it thinking this is a strange angle to come at it from so so what is the setup of the film so the it's told like the narration is driven by like Elvis's manager Colonel Tom Parker who like, you know, it was uncovered in the 90s that he was involved in, um, basically ripping Elvis off. So he is the narrator, um, which I think is an unusual starting point. But I, I, I genuinely think it works. Um, I mean, I will say it's been a long time since I enjoyed any type of Baz Luhrmann film. Mm. Um, like I haven't seen any of the recent I hated uh, Great Gatsby um, and I love uh, Scott Fitzgerald like and I love the Great Gatsby and I love <laughs> like that part of American culture but yeah I just I don't like that I haven't seen Australia I recently tried to re-watch Moulin Rouge and I couldn't I couldn't hack it I was like I can't deal with Ewan McGregor doing a musical I don't think I've seen any of these films. Um, I mean, I loved Romeo and Juliet when it came out. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. So he he was the he was the guy who did the Romeo and Juliet with um, oh god, what's his name? Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo DiCaprio, and it was kind of a bit yeah, it's kind of very stylized. Yeah, I mean, he does have. Well, this is the thing, isn't it? Right. So, what does a film about Elvis Presley really need? Right. It needs to have like an old school rock and roll energy which I think is like, a, it's, a, it's a sexy energy, right? It needs to mm -hmm. have like a really powerful sexual energy and it needs to be crass and garish and unsubtle. Um, and it needs that type of director because Elvis is an American icon. 
Do you know what I mean? He never left the US as a touring artist, synonymous with pop culture, like, you know, he's the, he's there with Marilyn Monroe. So like having a director that isn't afraid to be like grotesquely camp, I think was perfect. Like mm. the casting of Austin Butler, which I believe Priscilla Presley had final say on. Like, so when they were actually casting Elvis, she was like, basically had a yes or no to him. So have there been a lot of Presley biopics or is this quite unusual? Um, no, there are, there are a few. Of, so there's, there's two like made for TVs. And then there's like people doing Elvis bits in films. Yeah. There's like the bit in, it's like, there's a bit of like, kind of homage to Elvis and like true romance um, with Val Kilmer. There's um, Bubba Hotep, there's Elvis versus Nixon. Like, mm. by the way, full disclosure, like my mum is a bit of an Elvis fanatic. <laughs> and mm. I took her to see it and I was quite nervous about it because like, do you know I mean, hardcore Elvis fans are, they're a type. Mm. <laughs> so I was like, I was nervous about it, but Austin Butler is, he's so well cast because he has this rock and roll energy. He's really hot and he can dance and he does his own vocals. So you're kind of like, you get sucked in, but obviously then the direction of the film is quite disgusting and vulgar, mm. but that's what American pop culture is. It's vulgar and it should be in this film. Um, there's a little bit of, um, what would you call it? Maybe like lip washing going on, which you expect with. How do they cover the fact that his wife was you met her so young and all that kind of stuff? It didn't like that's yeah. I actually found it like fairly respectable that they didn't like moralize about um, the age difference. So Priscilla Presley being fourteen and Elvis being twenty four when they met in the scenes with Priscilla Presley, um, as a as a fourteen year old. They give her some degree of agency, like she's she's not portrayed as a victim. I mean, how realistic that is. Obviously, the family have had some involvement in it, so it's going to be like it's going to be like a cleaner version of Elvis the character than maybe Elvis the man really was. But where it starts to get like kind of lip washy, um, I mean, it doesn't talk about Presley's. Republican sympathies, for example, mm. um, and uh, <sighs> is he portrayed very much as? Because what I got from the adverts was, and of course it's true of him, that he's one of these figures who really helped to create youth culture and yeah. the kind of sexualization of yeah. like a public youth this culture. Thing, yeah. This is the thing that's been forgotten about Elvis Presley, right? Mm. Is that he has become an incredibly sanitized figure. Do you know what I mean? He's become, do you know what I mean, on any coaster, like on fucking fridge magnets, like, do you know what I mean? And that was a big part of like Elvis, the brand, even at the time. But the tension I think lies between like Colonel Tom Parker, who is the driver of Elvis, the brand, and wants to clean up his image. And Elvis, the performer, who is full of this like sexually charged energy. Like there's some great, <laughs> great scenes of like Austin Butler, just hip thrusting, right? <laughs> it's like the whole cinema screen is just taken up with Austin Butler's crotch. Thrusting at you. Yeah, thrusting. And it's like, because this was like sexually, it was scandalous at the time. 
were there were there a lot of women in the audience at this cinema showing? Um, it was mixed. I mean, I went with my. I don't. I don't really want a crotch getting thrust in my no, face it was for an hour and a half. Stop being so uptight, right? <laughs> I mean, I went with I went with James, right? So right. my husband and my mom and my dad, and we unanimously loved it. And we all have very different tastes in films, um, but you know, it did do the whole like him like writhing around and like women screaming which people I think I mean we've really forgotten about that there is a tendency to sanitize American popular cultural icons do you know what I mean like it doesn't really matter like whether that's from the world of like pop music from film um, or from politics like there's a tendency like after a period of time these people lose a degree of their um their kind of their confrontational power if you like yeah i often think the kennedys are a weird one in this regard because the kennedys were a mess do you know what i mean like they are the kennedy family is you know it's um it's kind of tammany hall politics really corrupt um you know there's the whole um incident where they kill that woman <laughs> do you know what i mean totally. the, the marlon monroe stuff is pretty sordid as well yeah well there's um, a marlon monroe film coming out quite soon with um the beautiful um anna de armas playing marlon monroe like i've seen some of the clips from it she, i mean she looks incredible but it's it's again i think it's like this kind of the dark side of that story right so rather than just this the kind of the obvious parts of it that people are familiar with it really goes into like what was happening behind the scenes in her life um yeah so the, the, i think that these films will kind of have the a thread of commonality between them um but like to to go back to the elvis film there's a there's this kind of like thread of it's a little bit goodies versus baddies um, mm. in that obviously Colonel Tom Parker is clearly a fucking baddie. Do you know what I mean? He's a bad guy. And Elvis is the kind of, he's the artist and he wants to, you know, perform his art and he has these constraints on him. Um, but it also, obviously, one of the big kind of woke criticisms of Elvis Presley is around um, his <laughs> quote unquote cultural appropriation. But I thought it, it dealt really well with Elvis being very clear about where the roots of his music came from do you know what I mean mm-hmm. it really it does like go into his relationship with B.B. King and his involvement in the Beale Street scene and um, do you know what I mean there's really like clear and strong examples of that and like how he in a subversive way brought black music into white households but you know, I think if you're going to do that and then you don't, I mean, obviously Elvis was a, had Republican sympathies. Do you know what I mean? He's white working class from the South in the mid-1950s. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I, the, the thing about the music, I by the way, I, I, I wasn't sure what you meant when you said cultural appropriation. I thought you were going to talk about karai, right? Japanese cultural appropriation. The thing about Why? the music thing, because he got into that in, in his kind of later phase, he kept doing all these kind of karate moves and stuff. Oh, you mean the... like those kind of like choppy hand moves? Yeah. Um, but the thing, I mean, <laughs> do, do you know though? Sarah, do you know though uh, that that blues music and like rock and roll and stuff <clears throat> is like 
the ultimate argument against the nonsense of cultural appropriation. Yeah. Culture just doesn't work that way. I, I mean, this isn't a thing that people say so much anymore, but culture has never been this. People sort of racialized culture as a concept. Like, I mean, I know it sounds like old school liberalism, but culture is not racial. It doesn't have a racial content. Like, so Wagner's not really like Aryan. Um, like a rain dance isn't really inherently in some like genetic sense Native American. Um, you know, like blues isn't inherently black. That there is no like racial content to this stuff. You can't appropriate it. And what you always find when there's I mean, there's never any distinct cultures to overlap, but when you have uh, ostensibly separate cultural um tributaries they always mingle with each other there's absolutely no way to like part of my like argument about cultural appropriation and that whole discourse is that culture is only you're only able to appropriate culture if you believe all culture is a commodity hmm. that's not how culture works it's yeah. not something that is available for um for trade like in a sort of like in a marketized sense so if you believe that culture is just something that gets bought and sold, then you want to talk about cultural appropriation, on you go. But like, that's not my understanding of culture. Um, but the film does, it deals so well with that. There's this beautiful bit at the start, um, no spoilers, but like, if I'd known this would be there, I would have gone to see it sooner. There's this incredible scene at the start where um, like young Elvis is like peeking into um like a, a like a kind of a shack um so it would be like a kind of a blues hut um and it's like kind of very sweaty and there's like sexy dancing and there's like and um, someone playing the blues and it's just this kind of very hot southern atmosphere in this little blues hut and then just next to it is a revivalist christian church tent where they're they're having a ceremony so there's like singing there's gospel singing there's um chanting there's tongues and he goes to the he goes to both of these things mm. you know what i mean so like these huge influences on like a young artist or like a young musician actually i think are clear throughout his whole life do you know what i mean like the the showmanship the performance and um, as well as the musicality of both yeah, I mean, I, I, that that is where kind of so much of Western musical influence obviously emerged from, and it would be impossible to unpick where that started. I mean, people can say white artists obviously borrowed from from black artists in the in the U.S. South, and of course, I mean, there is a truth here that they weren't well remunerated in those days for the contribution oh, totally, they were totally. making, were often kind of stolen from, and so on, but. As in terms of the, the the musical influence and so on, like it didn't start with black people and then white people pinched it. I, I mean, <laughs> like even even kind of like gospel music, obviously, and so on, like had quote unquote white influences in it. Like, <coughs> the, the the influences here are completely intertwined from the moment that um, the processes of colonization and bringing slaves to the Americas and so on began. Uh, and probably before then, that the, the, these sort of cultural influences were already intermingling. So I just tend to think that's a bit of a. Uh, no, it does, and it does touch on like some of those like complicated aspects about you know, 
obviously Elvis Presley becomes the star and there are other big rock and roll artists uh, like and blues artists on Beale Street that don't who are black um, and you know he's signed to um to a label because he is white and he sounds black do you know what I mean and there are these these kind of things that are touch points so like I mean I suppose what I'm saying is like that I think that stuff is good but I didn't feel like I was being preached to I hate yeah. when you go to the cinema and you feel like you're getting a fucking political lecture I hate well this is something that um Actually, I, I didn't do that in a way that I found like really cringy or preachy um, there was a little, do you know I mean, I could see that there was a bit of like kind of liberal washing, like it really messes out the old Elvis and Nixon bit. <laughs> but overall, like, I think that the film manages to capture some of the forgotten subversive aspects of Elvis as an American pop icon um, who's long been sanitized. Um, and as you were saying, like, his subversive aspect in those days was sort of organic and for a large part unspoken. He wasn't coming out and, and sort of launching political slogans at young people. He was simply disrupting the kind of cultural norms, which is something our generation and younger constantly want to do, but it's, it never works out that way. And partly that's because of like hyper politicization. So people never start to introduce new cultural norms or, shake up conventional ideas of morality what's the shake up at this point apart from anything else before they kind of launch into kind of manifesto type tirades about how the world should change this is why i always like really enjoy the music and aesthetic of someone like lana del rey because actually i think that is like a lot of her stuff is quite subversive in that her confrontation with the status quo is to go full trad <laughs> mm. do you know what I mean like there's like in those early records there's like there's no liberation it's all like that old-fashioned 1960s dreamy pop like I love this man he doesn't love me back and I'm really sad about it there's no yeah. there's no girl boss do you know what I mean there's no girl boss in that story yeah, and that would be conservative were it not for the fact that the girl boss thing is fake. You know what I mean? Like, so, but it, it reminded me of something James, your hubby, said to me about, because uh, okay. I also went to go and see, uh, <laughs> speaking of, speaking of, uh, speaking of trad, trad life, <laughs> uh, 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 Top Gun. We, uh, we both, I, I went to go and see Top Gun for my birthday. Um, to be honest, I only went because there was nothing else on, right? And when I say nothing, I mean the option was that a fucking Jurassic Park. 10. I've seen both of these. <laughs> Shut up! Jurassic Park must be fucking shit. I will, honest to God, watch anything that has Jeff Goldblum in it. Okay, right. I'm uh, so like, I know, I know, it's embarrassing, but I, I love him so much. Um, but Top Gun um, is so dumb like on, on one level you're watching thinking you know everything that's about to happen like it's absolutely ridden with cliches but what James was saying about it was I think the reason people are and it's kind of universally acclaimed right the reason that people like it so much is that it feels so liberating to be away from um the kind of the judgment of politics, the lens of politics, 
um, the lens of sort of hyper-politicization of culture. Here is something which is totally dunderheaded, right? There's nothing kind of venal or nasty about it uh, in its kind of militarism, right? Which is, I mean, it's, which is not kind of, you can't really take that away from it. But at the same time, it's such a level of like fantasy land, Team America, right? So kind of glossy in eighties that it's just totally unreal. Yeah. And you, you, you know, I mean, you're not you're not watching that getting angry about like uh, America and Vietnam or Iraq or whatever because it's too fantastical, too stupid, too playground. You don't even know who the baddies are in Top Gun. Yeah, is it the Russians? Is it the Muslims? Who fucking knows? Nobody yeah. knows. <laughs> yeah, they're purely a foil. They're purely a function. It totally. It's just to like drive these. Um, it's just to drive all the stunts. Yeah, all the stunts, all the archetypal kind of characters yeah. and so on. Tom Cruise is one of these actors who just like, I mean, it's so he's so naff, right, and so ridiculous, and yet you can't help but kind of feel some of that kind of like boyish charm off him even though he's now like 55 <laughs> or something I, by the way i've never seen one of his latter films where he doesn't get his top off at one point and i'm sure it's in the contract it must be he spends half the film with his top off right and he is in remarkable shape i mean he must work that. out hours every day right but he's i love it that he's like he's so old right but there's a scene in it where if you've seen the first Top Gun, you'll know there's a famous kind of like homoerotic beach ball scene. Well, in this, they're playing like American football on the beach and he's battering them, even though he's twice their age. It's fucking, it's hilarious. It's hilarious that like he must write that in. It always reminds me of how like Mel Gibson, you know, I'm a fan of Mel Gibson films. In every Mel Gibson film, there's a scene where he's like praying in front of a priest. And he's obviously written it in to every single film. There's a condition where he must be seen to prostrate himself before the cross in every single <laughs> film. And Tom, Tom Cruise's version of that is the people have got to see my pecs. You know what I mean? <laughs> people need to see my fucking washboard stomach in every single film. There's a film he's in. It's one of those Jack Leacher ones. One of these ones you watch on Netflix because you're sort of brain dead at the end of the day. And there's a scene where he just, he's in the middle of a conversation. He takes his T-shirt off, puts another T-shirt on. There's no point whatsoever. It has nothing to do with the story. It purely because it's in the contract. Um, so, yeah, that was my... I loved, uh, I loved Top Gun. I thought it was great. I, like, yeah. I was really reluctant to go see it. I was like, this is pissed. Like, I don't want to see it. Like, I was reluctant. I was sort of like, I, I like to go to the cinema university, but I was sort of like... For all that people are saying this is fun, I mean, it's just going to be ridiculous. And it is so naff. Um, yeah, I was really reluctant. I was really pissy about it, the same way I was about Dune. Um, and then about, I don't know, about 20 minutes into it, I was like, I'm having a really good time. <laughs> and you know everything that's going to happen. Like, but it's you just love to see it happen. And I'm not like, I mean, it's not challenging me. And not like getting annoyed about anything. I was just like, yeah, yeah, this is good. This no. is like, this is like, yeah, it really taps into a sort of a, a, an element of nostalgia that was very comfortable. Mm -hmm. So that's the culture review. <laughs> um, yeah, go see Elvis and tell us what you think of it. 
Um, what else has been happening since we've not been podding? Ah, um, uh, yeah, no, I mean, back. sorry, class politics is back or class politics briefly is back. back, briefly, uh, with the rail strike. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I've, I feel like a lot that could be said about the rail strike has been said. How refreshing it was to. Uh, there's another podcast on our Patreon that you should all be subscribing to, by the way, where James says uh, that, you know, after all this stuff about, like, diversifying, centering voices, you know what I mean? Like, we need all these, uh, we need a sort of ultra-diverse, you know, like, left and, and all this kind of stuff. In the end, what people really wanted was a big baldy trade union guy. Not uh, just a baldy trade union guy, a baldy Brexiteer. A, a big baldy Brexiteer <laughs> guy uh, who would just talk about bread and butter issues. That's what people really want at the end of the day. Uh, as we've discussed, no matter how people protest, what they really want is daddy. They don't want diversity. They don't want diverse voices. They want one voice. But this um, is, do you know what I mean? Like, I do think that there's truth in this. Like, I think people want a degree of fucking leadership. Yeah. You know I mean, and that's what Mick Lounge was ultimately showing. He was articulating things that needed to be said, that people know need to be said, that weren't being said by anyone in the political class. And he was doing it in a way that is very different from what we're used to seeing on television. And that's not to do with, like, just his the bread and butter issues or whatever it's the fact that he like didn't show any deference to any of these like hacks and like all of our politicians I mean when you think about it like the amount of (laughs) Corbyn had to show to like pundits and like media boards all these talking heads presenters all that stuff like there was a degree of kind of um do you know what I mean? Trying to like get them on side and get respectable. And Micklin's has just put that in the bin. And it's been great. And that's what's been really refreshing about it is that he has communicated those issues and those things that needed to be said about wages and wealth um, <clears throat> in a way that is incredible is confident. And it's the yeah. first time I've seen the articulation of class politics in a confident way like that for a long time and <coughs> sorry folks i'm just coughing to death um of course that yeah the, the the important thing really is that <coughs> the organizational basis that he's relating to so corbyn had to go home at the end of every media interview and get it in the ear from his back benches from all the um swines that he was forced to pack his shadow cabinet with because there was basically the labor left was so small he had to justify every media line to that organization to a parliamentary organization to the polling companies they were bringing in to an abstract conception of what the british public want whereas mick lynch is accountable to one group of people only which is a union of tens of thousands of people whose sole demand on him is that he represents them well in situations of that kind, 
that he effectively organised their actions when action needs to be taken. Those are very, very different relationships. And Mick Lynch is not seeking a career. He's not trying to get a return appearance on the TV. He's not like a kind of <clears throat> millennial leftist media entrepreneur, right, who's trying to get, well, I don't just want to be on Sky News today. I want to be on Sky News today and, to, and next week and in a fortnight's time and a month's time. I want to get called back on here over and over again. Whereas the media needs to come to Mick Lynch. There's no, like, he doesn't, he doesn't need to go to them. He's not asking them to talk. The media needs to go to Mick Lynch because he's the uh, figurehead of a disruptive activity that's taking place in the country and cannot be ignored by, by the news media. So it's a completely different relationship. Though I would say this is a point of kind of minor cynicism. It wouldn't be a contrast if there wasn't a bit of cynicism. There's a tendency for people to look at that situation and just sort of go like, see, like, we should have chosen this rather than choose Corbynism or rather than choose, um, you know, people entering the media sphere on a different basis or whatever, as though, as though that choice is always there, right? Like, to a certain extent, whether left-wing activists and commentators and whatever like this or not, the the pitch and level of the class struggle is an objective fact removed from like our desire for it to be what it is. It's not like you can just say, well, in the past, we had all these annoying grifters saying they represented the left going on Sky News and BBC and whatever. Whereas what we should have always been doing is having a rail strike. <laughs> That's not really in our power. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like... It's like what it's like. It's like this thing of like, we don't need. Uh, shouldn't have done Corbynism. We don't need an electoral challenge. What we need is a general strike. No, you know what we need is a socialist revolution. Fantastic. Um, but you know, so there was a bit of that. But it, but at the same time, it does just show you the huge difference between genuine self-organisation uh, among a group of workers and the difference between that and yes, parliamentary politics or like single issue campaigning politics where you are trying to break in and sort of advocate your position. I mean, I, I mean, another comparison that could be made between, would be between something like the environmental movement and the trade union movement, right? Where there's just not the same, you know, there's not the same necessity for democratic and hierarchical structure. Um, a lot of kind of street level social movements Um they're not hierarchical because they're not democratic. They can't reproduce that type of relationship that we were witnessing uh, on those BBC interviews. And that's a deficiency. That's a sign of that those movements are relatively shallow. And I don't say that as like a denunciation. It's a function of what they are in society. <coughs> I am dying here. Yeah, you you do look a bit like you're dying now. <laughs> um, I mean, it's not just um, and it's not just been Mick Lynch's performance. There's been other representatives of uh, the trade union movement of the RMT on our mainstream media recently. Like I think um, I saw Eddie Dempsey absolutely <laughs> slicing apart a Liberal Democrat um, for suggesting 
uh, bringing in the army to break strikes. I mean, we've mm. long been a long been a fan of Eddie Dempsey on this pod. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, I mean it's interesting to me, like watching these kind of these trade union figures in action, doing what it is they do, and comparing that to just a number of years ago when people like Ash Sarkar and Owen Jones were basically calling for no platform for Eddie Dempsey. Do you know what I mean? Be, calling him a fascist. And because he dared to mention the, I think he, he did, he said something about the white working class. Um, and they, they pulled out the, um, speaking at a, a rally, was Boris Johnson to resign um, because of Eddie Dempsey's comments. Um, but now what we're seeing is that actually that these people like they have they have power and I see like some of the new left you know just uncritically like getting behind them forgetting that you know they try to essentially do these people in do you know what I mean yeah and it, it again it shows like I know it sounds like kind of a hokey thing to say but I remember saying this at the time of the equal pay strike in Glasgow as well the nature of that kind of more direct class conflict in society is that it throws everything else into relief and it clarifies where the real divisions in society are. So during the, 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 the Brexit impasse, right. Eddie Dempsey became quite a controversial figure on parts of the left because he was willing to speak, you know, I mean, I remember him speaking some home truths. And one of the things he said was, um, you know, the, 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 the radical Remain campaign, Another Europe is Possible, was funded by George Soros. And this was greeted by, uh, you know, outrage, because, of course, that's a, an anti-Semitic trope, except, of course, that it's not, because it's actually true <laughs> and has nothing to do with George Soros being uh, Jewish. So, yeah, there was all that kind of stupid bit. One, but <clears throat> in those days, of course, there were people on that kind of like media orientated left who felt that they were in competition with Dempsey for platforms, for media appearances and, and so on. I got the impression from afar that Dempsey got a bit fed up of that circuit and kind of just sunk himself back into union work, right? Where he knew he could, you know, organize and have leverage and so on. But in any case, when he reemerges in this dispute as an organizer, his critics just have <coughs> they have no like no basis on which to criticize him. But that should be that should be borne in mind. Like that should be remembered. Like um, that a moment like this, when there's so much on the line in terms of the cost of living crisis and so on. If a moment like this destroys that no platforming shit, right, then it should never have existed. It's not, it's not, well, it was acceptable then and it's not acceptable now. If it's not acceptable now because the stakes are high, why were you pursuing it when, as you saw it, the stakes were low and they weren't low, right, during the Brexit crisis? They were exceedingly high. Why was all that silly behaviour going on then? If you can't justify it now, you shouldn't have been doing it then. Um, but you know the way it is, I mean, the left is kind of <clears throat> faddy and amnesiac. It doesn't doesn't remember its very immediate history. Yeah, you know? well, 
very resistant to learning lessons of that kind. And so anyway, after the three days of strike, which to me looked very uh, effective and efficient, and quite unusually in Britain, there was considerable support for a major strike action. Quite unusual in <clears throat> recent decades anyway. I mean, um, and the government really looked in the back foot and had no response. Uh, and so that was, a, I, I think, a bre breath of fresh air. And it should be um, remembered, like, the galvanising power that that has, the clarifying power that it has on a much wider basis, even than just the strike, which is... Uh, uh, commendable just on its own terms in terms of what it was trying to achieve and then I kind of felt like we kind of slouched back into the the traditional rhythms of course um I mean I just wanted to say like part of the reason that I'm bringing up the old Ashtar Cart Owen Jones no platform Eddie Dempsey bit is because this to me highlights like a fundamental problem that's existed in the left for a number of years now um, and it's where <clears throat> People on the left have no sense of perspective when it comes to a bigger project and um, no place for agency when you are showing some degree of like, I don't know, when you have a, a degree of platform. So what I mean by that is like, what, like, what I'm interested in and people like asking this question to people like Owen Jones, um, etc, not just him on his own like it's not a personal thing it's a political thing like what where do you best see your agency what is your project to build class power like how do you see yourself with the platform that you have fitting into the bigger picture and I think it became really clear in the last like few weeks that as you say that for some people they see that their place is just to be a commentator do you know what mm. I mean? It's to, be a, it's to be a pundit. And what that means is that you will blow in the wind. Like you're not ideologically anchored and you're not anchored within a working class movement. Whereas someone like Dempsey, his project is to, to go into the, back into union activity with, a, with an intensity. Do you know what I mean? Which anchors you and like you actually build power to this point of like you make an intervention, you bring class politics right into the front stage, like center stage rather, of British mainstream political agenda um, in a way that's not happened for a long time um, is much more useful than any number of fucking books like about the establishment or whatever. Not to say that books aren't important, like I'm not. I'm not saying that but like I think that these questions of like where do you see your agency best place like where do you go what's your project and how are you how do you like remain anchored to a working class movement um, and what are you like able to do to like help people experience their own agency um, and I mean like I, part of my project is about building a left big enough <laughs> to contain people who have different views on some of the broader social and cultural questions politically. I mean, I think there has to be a degree of unity on things like um, material conditions, um, like uh, economics and so on, but that you, you have to be able to build a left broad enough that when it comes to social and cultural issues that people have a difference of opinion on, 
that your organization isn't just going to crumble um, well i mean this this is what i was saying about clarification right so imagine this this scenario and i say imagine it it's true right there were big mobilizations down to picket lines across britain on the third day i think of the strike on the saturday including in glasgow and others in scotland now the people trade unionists just unattached activists from various parties mostly from no party who went down to those picket lines did they agree on gra reform no they didn't did they agree on the status of sex work no they did not would they even necessarily have agreed on questions like immigration i doubt it would they agreed on uh, on the european union no would they have agreed on Scottish independence? Certainly not. Uh, and I could go on and on and on, right, <clears throat> along that list. A challenge to people, and by the way, that's not to say that any of those issues isn't individually important. The European Union, for example, right, um, the RMT would never turn away support from people who didn't agree with the RMT's position on the European Union. But I'm sure that their activists would also assert that that debate about the European Union is important to class politics. It's important to the future of class politics, and I would agree. So it's not a question of like, oh, well, discussion is abolished and all these questions as soon as there is, uh, or none of these ma questions matter as soon as there is a class-based kind of fight, right? But you know how um, I'm reminded that a trade union leader in Britain, the leader of the UCU, a couple of years ago said that anyone who, who believed in class first and the other issues were secondary, didn't belong in the union, right? That, that's it's it's crazy. so barmy. It's so, so barmy. So ridiculous, right? Well, the, at the end of the day, like, I mean, obviously I reject theories of class reductionism, right? Like, that's, that's not really what I'm talking about now. I don't just, think class reductionism that, is so It's not even a thing, right? It's yeah. just a term that gets chucked out there, right? Because people are like, too lazy to actually argue your point. Um, is that of course like class has primacy because that's where the power that's where power comes from so it has to be the central point of unity it's not to say that those other issues are not important and they don't have some connection to class power and agency you can see that with the fucking brexit referendum the, the I mean, weird the weird thing class about does come first when you're trying to build working class power the, the, the weird thing about this is, like, I'm kind of, like, really anti-syndicalist as well. Like, yeah, it's not it's not even, like, I, I'm, I kind of find it weird that it's, like, people that, like, like me, you have to make that, that argument, right? But if for the longest time, if you said that you were fundamentally, quotes, class first in your analysis of affairs, it would be assumed, assumed that that was somehow, like, reactionary. And that you were the problem that had to be dealt with. Weirdly, by the way, this is like a zombie hypothesis was what's wrong with the left. So that has been getting argued since, I don't know, the 60s or 70s. By the 1980s, it had become an orthodoxy. The problem with the left is it's too interested in social class. It's too interested even in the critique of capitalism. <clears throat> it's too interested even in anti-imperialism. And what it needs to do is diversify its analysis into various questions, race, sexuality, gender, migration etc uh, etc et right uh, generational politics and so on i mean there were books from the 80s books like uh, beyond the fragments emerged from a feminist co uh, conference that you know sort of codified all these ideas 
horizontalist movements that were decentralized and sort of downgraded kind of male trade union leader type personalities in, in the left and so on. People will still reiterate those ideas to you, like it's a new analysis and like it's challenging an orthodoxy. It is the orthodoxy. It's been the orthodoxy for quite a long time. And I think it is starting to kind of fall apart now. And I think people are, once again, not afraid to say that they take what was, after all, a really foundational and essential position of socialist politics. That is, I mean, to in, 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 in a few words, the history of all hitherto existing societies, the history of class struggle. Not the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggle and a bunch of other shit, which is all equally important. And you can never, ever say that one um, part of the organisational structure of society is more important than any other at any point in time, because then you're creating competition between people who are oppressed. The point is, I think a socialist politics that doesn't identify <clears throat> the class schism in society, the class relations in society as fundamental and um, that's the one I'm looking for. Uh, I've got the COVID brain fog. Instrumental, decisive in a way that other relations, which are still important, aren't necessarily. Uh, I think is sort of immutable. You can't, you cannot re remove it from social yeah. policy. But I think, like, what part of what these movements, like these horizontalist movements, these non-hierarchical, you know, um, movements did? I mean, I don't even have COVID, and I've got, I've got the brain fog. Um, is that they also gave class and class politics cultural markers, mm. which has contributed to the confusion about what class is. So I have a, do you know I mean, I have a sense that a lot of these like kind of horizontalist, like new left movements gave uh, class politics these identifiers, like type, a type of identity really, do you know what I mean? Like identifiers working class, like that sort of thing where class becomes about fucking instant coffee and fart jokes or like I mean, minors welfare clubs and, and wearing like Stone Island jackets and listening to a waste, whatever the fuck it is, right? Like, do you know I mean, like this kind of like cultural identity of class, I think has really added to the confusing picture of what is it that socialists mean when they talk about class politics? No, absolutely. I mean, it... It's still, still to this day, when you say, <clears throat> when you make arguments about the place of class and social politics, someone said this to me, I, I mean, every time you think he's dead, someone brings it back, someone said to me, this to me only a few weeks ago, like, oh, you, you're just a wannabe working class person. Again, it's not about my own personal identity. I don't, I don't decide who I am first and then decide on my politics. Yeah, turns think, like, fucking important. <laughs> I don't, I just don't think I'm that important. Like, imagine Karl Marx, like, arrived in this situation of, like, this hyper-personalization of politics. And every single time he turned up at, like, a workers' meeting or something, someone said, oh, Karl Marx, you're always talking about the working class. However, you are very typically a member of, like, the middle-class intelligentsia. Your dad was a lawyer 
or whatever it was, right? He would have just been like, what are you on about? What are you talking about? What has that got to do with anything? What was his lived experience? Karl Marx's lived experience of privilege. Um, so, uh, no, but then, as I say, it was like, and the, but then it, for, for those who are watching, there was such a contrast between the kind of the discipline of that movement and everyone was on their best behaviour as well, right, around the rail strikes. I didn't see, maybe I, people have seen it, and I didn't see any silly behaviour. You know, people were galvanised and disciplined um, behind that, behind those days of strike. And then, um, of course, what we knew was going to happen, Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court in the United States. And, by the way, I think that the decision on the, needless to say, by the Supreme Court is ludicrous. Totally. And a sign of just how rotted uh, American society has become, how divided, how, um, how senseless the polarizations have become, how deranged and subcultural American conservatism has become, how incapable American conservatism is becoming, by the way, of being a serious force for the governance of the American empire. Um, because American capitalism, like, doesn't need this shit. It's a quite perfect example of you know like the, the relative autonomy of ideology uh, i don't think american capitalism particularly wants to force women back into the home i think that would be a disaster for american capitalism however american capitalism has traditionally needed this group of hardline american conservative christians and they have thoughts and ideas of their own and they are prepared to build up institutional capital and use it against their factional enemies within the, the imperialist system. So that's an expression of, of what's going on there. But, like, no sooner had that happened than you started to see the severe problem of having effective political mobilisation in the middle of a culture war framing. So I'll give you an example of this. I, I, it, like... I think it was imperative on the moment that that, of course, we've known for weeks it was going to happen. It was leaked by someone inside, which tells its own story about the weakness of America's institutions. Um, the moment that story emerged, and I dare, I dare say the worst, I'm camp campaigner saying this, people should have said, <clears throat> right, this is now a fight to defend the interests of all women, whether they consider themselves liberal or conservative because there will be a lot of women who are conservatives, right, or even Republicans or whatever, and who live in parts of the, like, Republican parts of the country and so on, who are in many senses now, like, more vulnerable, even than groups of women who might be more oppressed or poor in other ways, but who live in more liberal parts of the country, more isolated and so on. But what you did see uh, after the announcement of that decision was people saying things like, if you're a conservative man, woman, black or white, fuck you. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? There was, instantly it was reframed as the archetypical battle in societies between liberals and conservatives. And over an issue that emotive, you can understand how um, that framing comes about. But it's a disaster. It is a disaster to any kind of popular movement to split on that basis. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it is a, it is a tragedy and it's really horrible to watch like the fallout of it like it is there is a real disturbing element to it 
but I just want to like clear this one argument that's been doing my head in um, since the since Roe v. Wade was overturned, which is that somehow it's more democratic to have states make the individual decision. An old argument, of course, in the US. I mean that it's a really <laughs> there is a there is a type of logic to it that you think, well, you know, the the closer decision making is to the people, the better. But let's be honest, the vast majority of opinion polls show that people support Roe v. Wade as a judgment. They, su- they support upholding it. So overturning it is fundamentally undemocratic. Like, and decisions like that, it should exist at a national level because the nation state matters. Do I mean the nation state matters? Like, as like that's where people identify with, like where decisions are made, where power is held. So it should be held there. Do you know I mean in this idea that you know, oh well, it's it's more democratic because it'll be done at a state level? This is US politics we're talking about. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's not some abstract experiment in like local decision making. I mean, it's it's clearly undemocratic. Um but it does also for me like tap into something which is like why you can't rely on legal institutions to resolve political questions. This is a question about politics and a question about liberty, right? And they can't be, you, you can't just legislate on those things. There will have to be a political solution to that. And it means building up the that that majoritarian politics, like whether someone is like a white Republican man, if they support a woman's right to choose, which a lot of them do, then you have to be able to bring them into a big tent. Um, I agree with that. I also think, like, <clears throat> this is, see this thing about, like, um, like I, I, I watched kind of Tucker Carlson's take on this, and it is those traditional kind of conservative talking points of these people don't care about the Constitution at all. The Constitution mandates the separation of powers. The Supreme Court should never be passing political judgments. I think it's a reminder, by the way, that like socialists shouldn't respect liberal ideas about how the state is composed. Fuck the separation of powers, like the the supremacy of law in the system and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's nothing inherently that progressive about all that about all that stuff. Um, but. Yeah, so I mean, all that's going on. I mean, it, it looks ludicrous from, from where we're sitting. And like I say, like, I think it is, I think it's a register of uh, the serious problems, internal problems that the US now has. And one of the things that is, is repulsive about it is this is, this is obvious civilizational regression, right? Like, this is a very obvious sign of something that's become quite apparent, which is if anyone believed in sort of Barack Obama's Whig version of history, the, the, the arc of history is long. We're getting there. I mean, he, he's, he's probably still got a documentary up in the BBC iPlayer where he's given the most softball interview you've ever seen. It's like two hours long, and he just keeps saying, look, I know it, times are hard. I know Trump is scary. But remember, even though there are short-term setbacks, we keep moving forward. They go low, we go high. We keep we keep going. Well, that's not the uh, motion of history. 
like this wig history thing is not the most. The United States is clearly a society in a state of regression. Uh, and it's been in regression, I'd argue, for quite a long time. In fact, I would say that the period that we call the end of history, the sort of 30 years since the fall of the, the Berlin Wall, is in general terms a period of historic regression. Societies have generally become less democratic in that time, generally less equal, uh, and these are key indicators of uh, civilizational decline. The United States, I think, is going to have a serious hard time holding on to its hegemony in the next hundred years. Internally divided, facing increasing kind of polarization in the world system, sort of the, 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 the peak of the unipolar moment is over. And these two things are very much interacting with each other. All that said, uh, I can't stand the kind of importation of American cultural themes across the world. The thing that, that kind of annoys me about it to an extent is the United States is a unique and quite interesting phenomenon, right? Like it, it deserves uh, an individuated study of its own phenomenology, which is quite distinct from what's going on everywhere else in the West. The US is a huge outlier, right? It is an advanced industrial to post-industrial capitalist state. Uh, it's the wealthiest state in the world, <clears throat> controlling much of the world's trade, financial transactions, military operations, and so on. And yet it is one of the most religious societies on the earth. Yep. That alone makes it extremely unusual. Second only to like Iran. Yeah, there's a few countries that are that are more religious than the United States. I mean, it is actually the, the number of atheists is growing. That's an interesting story in itself, by the way, because they, they, I say atheists, it's not atheists, it's like people with spiritual beliefs who are no longer monotheists yeah. is growing. The number of atheists isn't really growing. Yeah, right? People who like believe in angels and stuff. Yeah. I don't right? mean that in a disparaging way. I remember reading a study about it as like um, the growth in the belief of in like your own personal angels and that kind of like more new agey. Yeah. And this stuff is also, it's kind of merging with um, like social liberal political doctrines and forming these weird hybrid kind of spiritualist political ideas. America is an extraordinarily sort of spiritual and religious society. Part of the story of that is that unlike in many European societies where anti-communism was a more political expression, it changes a lot within Europe as well. I mean, if you think about Christian democracy in Europe, Christianity was an important part of anti-communism. In the United States, though, evangelism was uh, funded to the hilt by the state and protected by the state and fostered as a, an express response to communism from the 20s and 30s onwards. American state managers realized we need a moral and ideological me- uh, response to the, to the ideas of the radical left. Um, there's a book about this came out quite recently, I can't remember its name, but it talks about, it shows how from the 20s and 30s onwards and through the Cold War, the American state poured huge amounts of money into making America more and more religious. America was less religious at the start of the 20th century than it is today, right? So there was a concerted effort. There's much more to say about religion than that because it's never just this imposition against society it involves real relations in society but 
that's something that makes the United States unique and explains quite a good deal about what we think of as the peculiarities of its cultural, peculiarities of its political scene and so on. Britain is nothing like this, right? It's, yeah. in, it's institutions, it's ideology, it's sense of public morality is about as radically different from the United States as from any other country in the world today. This, I think it's partly because the United States is still like the biggest exporter of like cultural products that we consume on a daily basis. It's a part of the Anglophone world. Like I get it. Um, but I do get really frustrated with um, every time there is a huge event in America that all of like <laughs> like left-wing radical politics seems to then swing back to we need to talk about how we show solidarity with America or Americans. It's like we have a it's it's as foreign a land as any other. And and it's not anti-Americanism, and this is the thing. I mean, the left used to be <clears throat> accused of anti-Americanism all the time, just automatically suspicious of everything America did, which was part of like a way to cover the fact that the left had a legitimate critique of NATO during the Cold War and NATO's European operations during the Cold War. So it's not anti-Americanism. If anything, it's like fulminating pro-Americanism. This is the strange kind of direction of this politics on the left. Um, we're so invested culturally and morally in, in Americanism that we feel this desire to kind of like take sides uh, on the basis of every American culture war, decide what type of American we are, right? And invariably everyone outside of the US doesn't decide that they're like a Southern Baptist, right? <laughs> that, that'd be quite interesting actually if there were some people who decided they were like, all these crazed southern evangelicals getting snake bites and so on um but everyone decides that well i'm like a new yorker right yeah uh, like, i'm like liberal I'm, america i'm i'm a member of liberal america and yeah, i'm going to join liberal this, america but this is i think this has taken on a different character um basically since the like late 90s early 2000s war in iraq because i remember like even like so liberals in britain being like you know I don't like so say like during the time of like the war in Iraq and um George W Bush you know having this critique of I love American people like I would never like you know um be rude to Americans who are traveling um because they're because they're Americans you know I love the the people and the culture the problem is the states their government is the problem it's the institutions it's the FBI it's the CIA it's all these things whereas that's now no longer the case right people don't talk like that and in fact since the election of trump what's happened is that i think that liberals in britain have swung behind the institutions of power in the united states so they actually do back things like the fbi the cia now it's like back in biden's government you know against all these crazed American people like it's a particular type of American person that is the enemy and it is completely removed from any analysis of the power structures or institutions that have been built up by very rich and powerful people in the United States and it's so it's so like intellectually unserious Joe Biden opposed Roe v Wade like he opposed it in the 70s 
because he's always had this thing that he's this Irish Catholic from a working class background. He's trying to and they keep those people on side and all this kind of stuff. Um, what I find it like, see, see, a minute ago we were just talking about this thing of like, oh, if you say class is first and everything else is secondary. What I find remarkable is that all these kind of radical liberals who have Americanized in this way, they have no like intellectual rigor. No. Like, sorry to like sound like a dick about this, but you'd need to go to a socialist for the most part to find a degree of rigor about questions like. Uh, debates about why this is happening in the United States. I've actually seen some people like saying, why? Why is this happening? Well, why do we have a left which is rightly animated by this question but doesn't understand why Why is there so little intellectual inquiry into firstly, why the American conservative right is behaving in this way because it's not entirely rational. Secondly, why the wider system, the wider institutional apparatus of American capitalism is allowing this to happen, or even the question of does it want it to happen? And thirdly, why the Democratic Party is so routinely fucking useless at doing anything about the conservative right? I also or, did see someone say um, the reason this is happening is because you didn't vote for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Yeah, so the thing that the analysis gets sucked into the culture war memeology. Right, that's what's happened to it. And it's like this thing of like, it's again, it's this weird anti-intellectualism of the culture world. Don't talk about it. Don't write about it. Don't try and understand. Just rage. Right? Just know that their side, which is never just the rich and powerful conservatives, right, who we can all be united in contempt for, but is the bad half of America. The bad half of America are malicious, evil people. They want to hurt women rage against them the horrible truth not to say of course right that there's no so no sort of misogyny involved in the debates around restricting women's access to abortion right of course there is you only need to watch some of these people on fox news to feel the resentment but conservatism of that kind of this kind of foamy religious type like i say it's there because it provides people with a moral critique of modern society that they feel can repair the problems of modern society. Conservatism is a response to capitalism. Like people forget that. There are only ideologies which represent a critique of the status quo. If you don't need a critique of the status quo, you don't have an ideology, right? The whole point of this is conservatism of that type that's emerged in the United States allows people to be angry at the status quo it allows them to have a moral critique of the status quo that it's that thing of a heart and a heartless world, Marx famously called religion, the soul of soulless conditions. It allows you to say modern society is extremely destructive of human beings, of human relationships, right, which it is, and arrive at a conclusion that fundamentally allows you to keep that the 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 main power centers and the centers of capital accumulation and the state and so on intact but still critique the, the, uh, the general kind of moral decay of that social order. In that sense, like conservatism of a type that exists in America, but doesn't really exist here, is the, is the mirror image of something like social democracy. They're both attempts to critique and ameliorate the, the situation in society in ways that keep the fundamental structure of society intact i don't think that there's an awareness of that aspect of like reactionary politics i think the attitude is just 
they hate us and are trying to destroy us. That's why you always get this stuff about they hate all women. Like they want to just like destroy women completely. Um, and we hate them. And let battle be joined, right? In some sort of like Gutadamarong struggle to, to the end. Uh, and that the fundamental division in society is therefore between the left and the right, between social conservatism and social liberalism. That's not uh, an intellectually useful or involved understanding of how ideology operates in society. I agree. Um, I could talk about this all day, but we do have one last item to cover before we finish, and we've got about 15 minutes to do a, a whirlwind of... Uh, but all you need to know, all you need to know is it's time. That's it. Uh, get, your, get your jacket. It's time. Uh, Nicholas Sturgeon says, it's time. She's fired the starting gun. Which is, which is an Uzi, by the way. The starting gun's on full automatic. The starting gun has been on full automatic since 2016. For six years, she's loaded clip after clip into that Uzi and pumped round after round into the air. And the Uzi is now red hot and melted. But finally, we are in an independence campaign. What I will say is we do actually have a separate pod out on this, on Contour, don't we? Yeah, no, we do, and it is is free to the public. Though that shouldn't stop you from signing up to our Patreon. Um, so uh, I would recommend people listen to that. I mean, I I had a real blast from the past yesterday, yeah. where I tweeted something about the so called upcoming so called referendum. Yeah, <laughs> got fucking hundreds of dogs abuse from Nats. So it was like oh. a real trip down memory lane. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, wait, no, that is partly the purpose of this is to like discipline the movement. And yeah. like, so even like the detractors, like people like Craig Murray who have been really critical of like Sturgis' position are like, okay, well, let's let's get on with the campaign. I mean, it, it serves to discipline people um, into like, this is happening and we need to win it, right? It's not going to happen. <laughs> no. I like, it's not going to happen on that date. Right, that is my firm belief. I think that it's obvious that the the SNP have used the possibility of an imminent referendum to consolidate their own power, the power of the establishment, and the status quo in Scotland, basically for the last ten years. Like, I don't see any evidence that now says that there is a game changer moment or like there's this real um, shift in their approach. Like that's just not happening. Uh, no, I, and I mean, to, to update people in case people have missed this, uh, Nicola Sturgeon announced to the parliament that she wanted a referendum on the 19th of October. She was submitting that plan to the Supreme Court. Sorry? 2023. 2023, so that's what, 16 months from now or something like that. Uh, she said she would, she would submit that to the Supreme Court because there were already plans for other people to do that. So she's sort of said, I'll get out of the way, I'll submit it to the Supreme Court. Everyone is expecting the Supreme Court to say no, uh, in which case uh, she says, well, if we can't get a legal referendum by 19 October 2023, then we'll go into what we assume at this point will be a 2024 general election uh 
looking for the mandate. Oh, the fucking mandate! The mandate is back. We're going to secure the mandate through an independence-only campaign. Um, now, first of all, I mean, there's loads of people going around saying, like, posting that date everywhere. Well, did she not kind of tell us yesterday that she doesn't expect it to happen? So I would kind of say that she's now officially... She's not officially ditched 2023, but she's all but officially ditched it. And yet there's loads of people going around saying it's going to be 2023. What I find absolutely fucking hilarious about this, by the way, is the way it happened. So this isn't the statement by Nicholas Sturgeon as leader of the SNP. This is a statement by Nicholas Sturgeon, who's leader of a coalition government with the Greens. The major pillar of her new policy on independence is that in 2024, everyone has to vote for the SNP. And we found out that the Greens didn't know this. They had not read the paper. They're not allowed to. So they found out right then and there in the uh, in the, the Parliament chamber that the call out that the Greens' position is that in 2024, you everyone should just vote for the SNP. They weren't asked about it. They didn't know about it. They found out when you and I found out about it. They found out when I was like when I was full of COVID watching bbc 24 and i heard the words you know ev- you know at which point you know that'll be a de facto uh, referendum vote for the snp it's okay because they don't know what de facto means i uh, well yeah uh, lorna slater was later interviewed and she was just like yeah i don't know what de facto means um so in a sense what it means is that you are getting shafted by the snp left right and center man and then all this stuff with rent controls Oh, see watching it, I'm like, this is, this is hell. Like I, yeah, I just I can't even look at the car crash that is the Greens coalition. Oh man, the Greens at this point are just a permanent like meat puppet for the SNP. And in the last few weeks, what they've they've they were they're against universal like free school meals. They're against universal free school meals in case kids from private schools get them which is just a really old argument against universal stuff. They're against the rent freeze and they're insisting that this has to wait until 2025, by which point inflation will have evicted thousands and thousands of tenants from across the country. Other stuff that they've opposed, the National Energy Company they used to support, um, they used to care a great deal about NATO, but they went very quiet about that, particularly after Ukraine. Yeah, like Ross Greer did continue to do the anti-NATO stuff, didn't he? Yeah, but that, he's he's sort of rhetorically very attached to the Kurdish stuff, right? Which is something like, he's kept no, up. Over I years. just feel like it's worthwhile, like actually giving people credit where it's due, right? Yeah. On I, no, no, I I think that's fair enough. Though I would still say it's. I, I would still say it's a deeply contradictory position to be like pro cards and uh, anti-NATO, but not to take that fight, as it were, to the Scottish government. But there you go. Um, so, yeah, on a hundred different issues now, the, the Greens have just rolled over entirely. And what do they get in return for it? They're not even told that their policy is now to vote for the SNP <laughs> in a general election. They didn't even get to hear about that. But do you know, in a way, like with the Greens, it kind of doesn't matter. I get the feeling that the Greens have built a very durable, solid constituency. Um, or like, don't assume that the people who vote Green pay much more attention to politics than the majority of the population, like day-to-day parliamentary politics. No one's sitting there watching the parliament. 
I mean, I would love to, I'd love to ask a technician at the website for the parliament, how many people were watching that yesterday? I doubt it's 2000, right? Let, let's be real, right? Are watching parliamentary debates about a rent freeze in Scotland. And half of them, because I used to, I've done work for companies where the whole point is you sit in on parliamentary debates and write down, you transcribe what everyone is saying because businesses like landlord lobbies will buy that stuff, right? So that they have the intel and so on. So a lot of the people watching that yesterday, honestly, half were there for industrial reasons, right? Um, so don't assume that like green voters, because I did see a lot of green activists and stuff who fair play to them were just like, fuck this, like this is a joke. So quite a lot of people saying they were resigning from the Greens and, and so on. Um, but I, I wouldn't assume this is going to hurt them in the polls. Do you know no. what I mean? And in much the same way as the SNP have done lots of stuff that should have hurt them in the polls and it hasn't. That's not necessarily like yeah. no, how this works. But the thing with the Greens is like it goes back to like what like what is the relationship to um, a working class base? The answer is none. Like, so quite that's not and that's not a personal slight on people who are socialists who are in the Greens. It is a historical fact that the Green Party does not have any type of historical or political relationship with the organised working class, right? That's just the way it goes. So when things like this happen, there is no way, there's no mechanism by which that they can be held to account in a particular way. Exactly. And, and, and like, you know, they voted for 30,000 job cuts and pay cuts for half a million workers, but how many of those people actually vote green? So well, we'll see, right? But um, the upshot of this, as you say, is I assume now we are heading for a general election in which there will be a tremendous dragooning behind the SNP. They didn't, I mean, John Swinney at first appeared on the BBC and said, we just need to win a majority of seats, which was the old SNP policy back in the day before the gradualist won out fully. Um, but now he's reversed on that and said, no, we need a majority of votes. Now, I thought that was interesting because if all you need is a, is a majority of seats from Scotland, that takes the pressure off a lot because the SNP have done that in every election, 2015, 2017, 2019, easily, easily. If you say, no, it has to be half of the voters, yeah. then that imposes a lot more discipline on people to yeah. vote SNP, yeah. a lot more. Yeah, so, so, like, as you were saying, that gives the SNP leadership, once again, quite a big stick to beat people, to moralise people for how they need to... One last push, yeah. one last push, one last push. So that's uh, that's where we are at this point. I mean, I'm really... I'll be honest, right? And it's not just getting called a red Tory for the first time in, like, 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> but the nature of the... Yes, movement has changed so much. It's become so completely poisoned with the culture war. That oh God, there is yeah. a complete absence of class politics now in the Yes movement, which is really, really, I mean, it is depressing. You basically have on one side, like, did you see, I think we definitely talked about that, that um, the Bannockburn rally. 
Oh yeah, yeah. It was like the guy dressed up as Robert the Bruce, and there was all that like solitary Scottish resistance side of the yes movement and then there's the kind of like professional managerial class side of the yes movement that tells the other one to stop doing hairy arse nationalist things yeah yeah like that like stop referencing do you know what i mean and it's like these are these are the two halves of the yes movement and it's like there's no class politics here um there's that um stat that our comrade pete remand um has used a few times in his theories that support for Scottish independence amongst the kind of like professional managerial elite in Scotland went from about 19% pre-2014 to now being at 59%. Yeah. It tells you something about like the class composition of the movement. Do you know what I mean? So that elite section of managers going from the group that are least likely to support independence to being most likely, whilst the working class support for independence just like flat lines or falls. Um, I think really is testimony to the fact that the SNP have presided over such a terrible failure in, the, in their domestic record. Yeah. Really every front, but also the fact that the movement has been broadly left leaderless for such a long time. Do you know what I mean? Like all of that pre-2014 pro-independence, anti-establishment energy has now become establishment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's a huge problem. It's a huge and problem. The thing is, right, I would sympathise with people who say, well, break that apart then in the campaign. Now, we'll see what happens. My feeling is that there isn't a campaign, right? And this is how, this is, the SNP are very careful to keep charge of the process in a way that means that new outgrowths can't emerge to challenge it so this morning everyone's been told yesterday there's going to be a referendum in 16 months time <clears throat> i'm not seeing anyone announcing any initiatives i mean are people running around booking conference venues are they establishing new organizations are they doing the sorts of things that were going on not in 2013 16 months wow. before the 2014 vote but 2012 and 2011 we're way behind that um, timetable. And yet I don't see a flurry of action. And even people who are saying, yes, it's on, let's go and all this kind of stuff. The, the, the thing that I always like, the engagement in politics is talking quite a lot about human psychology is, and we all do this, we all do this. You can really believe something and really not believe it at the same time. It's a bit like this, like my diet will start tomorrow. One part of you really believes that, right? The other part knows it's a lie. One part of people who are saying, yes, I knew it, Nicholas Sturgeon's pulled through, they're being that effusive because there's a part of them that doubts it very profoundly, right? From long experience, from the fact that it's just there's just something missing, right? It's intangible, but there's something not right. There's something not there. Um, and I'm already seeing that. I'm already seeing people saying, yes, let's go, but it doesn't go beyond tweet. You know what I mean? Now, there will be some initiatives at some point, I've no doubt, but I reckon it will be relatively controlled and stage managed. Um, and besides that, I won't make more predictions. Let's let's watch and see. But uh, I think we need to kind of cack any on the issue. To be honest, I don't I don't think there's much to be gained by well, assuming the good faith of the SNP leadership at this, this point. This is my this is kind of where I'm at politically at the moment is that 
I think that there's there's been a huge change in the political landscape since the last referendum. I think there's a lot of dishonesty within um, like the pro-independence movement broadly about the outcomes of independence. At the moment, I think that looking at the facts on the table is that economically independence would be potentially damaging in the short term. But ultimately, like, if we don't resolve this question by becoming independent, then Scotland will continue to flatline and continue in stasis. It's not going away. British capitalism is not going anywhere good. Like, yeah, that is undoubtedly the situation. You know, and that's, that's kind of where I'm at. And I think that the role of, like... Do you know I mean contour and things like that is not to is not to boosterize, not to provide any left cover for an independence campaign, but is to tell the fucking truth. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like actually to be truthful and honest about um what is happening. And I think it'll be really difficult to be honest to like I'm not looking forward to having to hold my nerve for 16 months on this, but I'm pretty I'm pretty sure that that our cynicism is well founded. Well, we'll see. That was a good bumper episode there. Sorry for how long it's been. Um, Since the last one. Yeah, we always say that though. Anyway. Uh, see see you in a couple of weeks. On the pod. I mean, obviously I'll see you before that in real life. <laughs> I'm going to stop recording now. Uh, how did I do that again? It's at the top. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh.